Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Parliament resumes in two weeks, but how is it going to run? The federal government proposed a full resumption using a hybrid model, but not everybody's happy about it. B.C. Supreme Court has ruled that private health care is not a constitutional right, and the public health care system still rules. We'll get some reaction to that. Concerns raised over face shields being used by occasional staff at the Hamilton Board of Education. And have the recent statements released about Donald Trump comments about U.S. soldiers in the pandemic costing him politically? We'll get some perspective on that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's going to be happening, uh, well, on September 23rd. Of course, Parliament is supposed to get back to work. Uh, it has not been without controversy, as you might have expected, uh, because of the we situation, because of Bill Morneau's resignation, uh, because of, well, a number of concerns about uh, how much debt we are in as a country right now. We're not alone in that regard, but you know, it's our problem and we have to deal with it. And how's Parliament going to look when they get back? As of today, uh, they don't seem to be able to even agree on how this is going to look. There are some MPs that would rather just have everybody back there. I'm not so sure that's a prudent thing to do with COVID still with us. Uh, but how much of it's going to be virtual? The Conservatives have already been on record as saying they don't like this idea of virtual voting. They want to be there for that vote. Uh, they haven't got a whole lot of time to try to figure this out. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Richard Brenner, retired journalist uh, for the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Hey, Bill. How's it going? Good, good. This is always an interesting time when there's going to be a throne speech. We already know, but of course, proroguing the last session of Parliament. Uh, not quite sure exactly why, but you want to hit the reset button on that situation. But the uh, uh, just on that point alone, uh, if the anticipation and if the uh, uh, intent was to to get rid of the we problem, that's not going away anytime soon. The opposition parties are just going to pick up on that. Oh, of course. I mean, that's that's long from dead. Let's face that. that you know, in terms of coming back, everybody coming back, uh, 338 MPs. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. You know, politicians are supposed to lead by example. And I, for their own sake as well, I don't, I can't imagine why it's necessary to bring back all of them. They can, you know, do it remotely and, you know, bring back enough people on either on all sides of the house so they're, you know, socially distanced. And you can, you know, committees can still go ahead. There's nothing to stop from that, you know, from that from happening. I mean, of course, uh, committees looking into the we affair is going to happen. I, I, I know that if I was an MP, I would want to be there, particularly right now, because we're, you know, they're looking at it. They're going to bring in a throne speech. You know, will the government fall on that throne speech? I mean, that's a big question too. I don't think so, but. So everybody's excited. Everybody, you know, it's like the first day at school. Everybody's excited to get back and want to know who's doing what and and how things are going. But this is this is not ordinary time. Bill, are you still broadcasting from home? Absolutely. Well, there you go. I mean, you're you're you know your company and you decided that that's you know the best course. And I I, listen, I don't know too many broadcasters right across the country that aren't broadcasting from some remote location oh, at this absolutely. stage. Oh, absolutely. I mean, come on. We know, and we're, we're seeing the numbers, you know, rise quite substantially. And and what they say is the beginning probably of the second wave. So, you know, that's the MPPs, or MPs, I should say, should stand back and take a, you know, take stock and say, you know, we really don't need to have everybody here. 
But again, you know, there's another angle to this. For all the years that you've been covering the legislature and, of course, Parliament Hill, uh, and I hate to be crass about this, and I'm going to probably offend some backbenchers, uh, most of the people in that hall, those 338, are simply bystanders anyway. There's only a handful of people that really take part in the debates. Well, we used to we used to joke that with some of those backbenchers, we said if their seats were any further back, they'd be in the parking lot. Um, you know, it just you know, no, and no offense to them. I mean, they're they're not in cabinet, and you know, maybe they don't serve on committees. So, do they have to be there? I don't think so. And you know, and that's not to offend anybody, but that's just the truth. I mean, their job, and again, I know some of those people, I know you do as well, and they're very well-intentioned, and I know they do great constituency work, but when they're sitting in there, for instance, especially during something like question period, which I think is what the, the conservatives are salivating now to get back into, uh, their only job, the backbencher's only job in that particular situation is to thump on their desks and hoot and howl, and you know what, I don't miss that. No, you know, trained seals, we used to call them. And now who needs that? So let's let's be serious. Let's get down to business. I, you know, obviously they've got to look into you know into what the government's been doing or hasn't been doing. Whether you know the uh, the throne speech gives them what they're looking for, or whether they're going to bring down the government. So there's all kinds of stuff that goes on, but it doesn't necessarily. No, not everyone has to be there for it. What about what they're going to be doing here? And there's a lot of speculation about that. We, uh, we got the story, of course, about a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, that the prime minister was consulting, uh, basically uh, kind of hanging out the suggestion box uh, uh, on, at, on the hill there and simply saying, anybody got any ideas for the budget, let us know about it. Uh, I know they were consulting even the backbench MPs. Uh, I talked to a few of them that have already had meetings with some cabinet ministers about this situation. I don't know how much, if at all, he's reached out to the opposition parties on this, though. Is, is that normal? Pretty well. Well, politics has become, become such a divisive game anymore that, you know, that just, it very rarely happens. I mean, how often, how often does the prime minister sit down with the opposition leaders? Very seldom. So it's, it's not that kind of collegial uh, way of doing things that might have existed maybe 25 or 50 years ago. So, yeah, they, they don't uh, very seldom consult the opposition parties to say, you know, what what do you think we need? And I and I and for the life of me, I don't understand that. You know, your opposition parties have good ideas too, just not the government of the day. So I would I would think that they, they should, but they don't. And I think that's a, a real failing in the, in the parliamentary system. Well, especially when you're in a minority parliament. And, and I agree with you. I don't think the government's going to fall on this vote. I, I think enough people will just pass on this or just kind of hold their nose and, and keep this going for at least, uh, I think, another five or six months. Uh, but by the same token, uh, you want to err on the side of caution here. Uh, there better be some goodies in there to at least look well, for instance, the NDP, uh, to look at this and say, well, we can't really vote against that. I mean, I'm, we're talking about things like a national daycare program, uh, the EI reform, a, a number of different things like that. I know there was a rumor a week or so ago that they, they were going to go way green on this one, and I, that, that seems to have died. I don't think that's necessarily going to happen to the extent that maybe some people would want to. But you've got to throw something in there, some, some little tidbit there that they can grasp onto and say, well, I don't like what they're doing, but I can't vote against this. I think they're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink in it, but whether, you know, it's almost meaningless, you know, whether in their, their term, how long that may last, they can get it done is, you know, is, uh, is anybody's guess, and we know that most of it won't be done. But, yeah, they'll try to uh, placate 
you know, some of the, the opposition parties, you know, especially the NDP, was something. I what that something might be, who knows? And it may, it may be daycare, it might you know, which, which we've talked about since Adam was a pup. So that that might be in there, and there'll be there, like I say, there'll be something in there for everybody. Uh, I mean, the block block has already said that they're going to vote against it. Well, we'll see what they do, but you know, so what if they do? I mean, they don't they don't hold the balance of power. It's really yeah, that's that's kind of that's really just bluster, isn't it? I oh. mean, Blasek can say that because he knows that you know they can all vote against it if they want, and probably the conservatives will vote against it. But that doesn't mean the government's going to fall. Well, it, yeah, you could say because none of the parties are in a position that I know of uh, to really afford another election, and th- so they really started. They got to start, you know, collecting money from from folks, and before they even think about doing it, I know the NDP is a you know a little better position than they were before. But we have a new we have a new conservative leader who's not that well known. He's one. He's going to want to get out and go from one end of the country to the other. So yeah, it's. As you said, it's just blustered. It's not going to happen. The technique here about you know the electronic voting and, and the remote uh, participation in this. Uh, during the last session, before it was prorogued, uh, the conservatives were just dead set against this. They didn't like the concept at all. Uh, I don't. I'm, I know some people are saying they just don't embrace the technology. I'm not so sure what the rationale was, but they have not really commented on this because this is the model, I guess, that uh, the government's trying to put forth, and the NDP seem to think, yeah, we can live with that. Uh, the conservatives haven't commented on that yet. What what if they can't establish some sort of consensus on on protocol and, and on methodology? Well, I, the majority rules. Uh, yeah, I, that's yeah. I tell you the truth, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it, I mean, they're going to have to come to some conclusion. And whether O'Toole wants to make this the hill that he dies on is, I don't think so. So they'll arrive at something, you know. The conservatives and I can't—you can't blame them. They're trying to build up their image and, and you know across the country, and they want to be on TV and as much as possible, and they want to have all their you know backbenchers there thumping their desks and that to to say, hey, we're here, we're we're the government waiting and all that. And it's a little harder to do when when you're working remotely, but Bill. One thing that this COVID, this pandemic has shown is that people can work from home and they can work remotely. So why would the parliament be any different than the rest of the country? Well, we've all had to adopt, haven't we? Yeah. Adapt to different methodologies here. Uh, you know, not just this business, but every business. I mean, I know a lot of people that are still working from home. Uh, and you're right to that point. I mean, we're told now that uh, some businesses are just reconsidering this whole process and say, yeah, maybe this is not a bad idea for the long run either. Uh, I, that's not what we're suggesting for Parliament. I mean, at some point, all 338 are going to get back in there. Uh, but uh, I, I guess the question a lot of the opposition members would have at this stage, though, is when? If not now, then when? What what barometer? Do you, have they even talked about that? Uh, you know, the number of cases going down, or, you know, do they wait until they get a thumbs up from uh, Dr. Tam? Well, how, how do you make that determination? Because there are people within uh, all those parties, within that realm there, that, that want to get back together right now, notwithstanding COVID. I, I don't think that's a very smart idea, but do you do it in a phased-in approach, or is it just, okay, the next session, everybody's welcome again? Well, they're no different than you and I, Bill. I mean, and there, everybody in this province and all the other provinces are waiting for, you know, you know, some some magic potion to come along, and 
and uh, help us out of it. That's I, I, that's the only way I see things changing dramatically. Well, and let's look at the reality here. I mean, you know, well, I'll deal with the Ottawa situation, uh, which is in Ontario. We had Dr. David Williams on the program a couple of days ago, the Ontario Medical Officer of Health. Uh, and he told us he's concerned about the, the number of, of new cases. That's not a spike, not yet anyway, but it's troubling. And, and, and he says, you know, we're going the wrong way. Uh, and, of course, the schools are starting to reopen again. Uh, you know, Hamilton's open this week. London opens theirs next week. Uh, you know, some people are going back to post-secondary education. Uh, they're partying again. A lot of people are partying again, even though they're not supposed to. Uh, you know, nobody wants to see it get as bad as it did in some places in the United States when they started to reopen. But uh, I, I got the sense that both Dr. Williams and, for that matter, the Premier, when we talked to him, uh, they want to nip this in the bud. They're not going to let it get that bad. And if it means shutting things down again, including the legislature or parliament, I don't think they'll hesitate to do it. Well, we have a bunch of, you know, uh, young folks right now, and they're making up the majority of the people coming down with COVID now, you know, in, in their 20s and 30s. So what we the message has got to get across to that segment of society and saying, hey, you can't go you, you can't go partying in a cottage or or, you know, or a, a wedding or whatever it might be, because there are severe consequences. I don't know what more people, you know, people like, uh, you know, Cam and Williams and that can do or the premiers can say to get this message across. Do you have to hold your hand, you know, it was, you know, every morning go walk down your neighbor who's opposed to uh, wearing a mask and put his mask, his or her mask on for I That's why it's so frustrating. It's, and I and, and this and this you know goes right to the top of the you know, political scale. People are saying, well, "When is this going to be different? When are people going to finally realize that this is a serious situation?" And that's what Parliament's looking right right now. How serious is it? Can we bring everybody back? And the answer I think is most people, are, reasonable people, are saying, "No, you can't have all 338 people." In the, in the House of Commons. You just can't. It, it doesn't make a lick of sense. It, it sends all the wrong message. I think that's where we're at right now. And I understand this is going to be a very important session because, like I say, COVID's not going away. And, and uh, the government's already made some proposals now for some new spending, which I know this, some of the opposition members are not very comfortable with. Uh, but you can express that discomfort or that opposition to it remotely as much as you can by sitting in there. Uh, and voting, which is still going to be allowed if, in fact, they, they decide to go down that road. Uh, I, I just think you, your point at the beginning of our conversation that uh, should, you know, underscore just about everything here. It's they're the ones that's supposed to set an example, and and if they're not paying attention to social distancing, and if they're still getting together in groups, and 338 is more than 60, and that's what we're supposed to be doing in Ontario. Uh, you know, they, they've got to sec- give that a second thought. I think. Absolutely, no, no. You know, we're we're going to we're going to read about this for the next few days because there are people that are going to, you know, all the parties are going to say, well, we want to do it this way, and other ones, well, I want to do it that way, and I think the conservatives are going to, you know, try to stand tall and and say, look, at, hold on, we want all our people here, and they'll come to some resolution, I, I think. But you know, who calls it in the end? I, well, the government of the day uh, will will decide, and. <laughs> Is this an issue that you want to bring the government down on? It wouldn't be because it's not, you know, it's not a monetary or, or uh, otherwise issue. 
So they have to work with, and Canadians are expecting them to work together to res, you know resolve this. What it, most people would say is a pretty easy question to uh, to answer, and that's not have everybody in there at once. So they've got to they've got to look at it and they've got to bounce ideas off each other and come to some conclusion. I mean, this ain't rocket science. You know, if they, these are adults, let's let's face it. Let's let's decide what's best. What's the best message we can send, and what is the best thing we can do for the MPs that have to have to show up? Well, we'll see how they handle this over the next couple of days. As always, Richard, thanks so much for this. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too, Bill. Thank you. You betcha. Richard Brennan, retired journalist, of course, who covered Queen's Park and uh, and the Ontario legislature for so many years, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. British Columbia Supreme Court has dismissed a years-long court challenge of public health care rules in B.C., that claim the province's health care system denies patients the right to timely care. That was the basis for, for the court action. Uh, the constitutional challenge was launched by a private health care advocate, Dr. Brian Day, who owns a clinic in Vancouver. Uh, he claims that prolonged wait times for medical procedures violated two charter rights, including the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. Well, the court said no, it doesn't in their ruling. Uh, but it's not the first time, nor the last time, I'm sure, that there's going to be some sort of challenges to our healthcare system, uh, and always the discussion of can I go private versus public uh, in this country, and it's been going on for quite some time. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Danielle Raza, chair of the Canadian Doctors for Medicare. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. First and foremost, I guess your reaction. I assume you're pleased with the ju- the, the court ruling. Yeah, you know, uh, when I saw the ruling yesterday, uh, the first thing that surprised me about it was it's 880 pages. You know, this comes after four years of uh, expert testimony, and the judge was very decisive. Uh, he, you know, very clearly struck down the uh, and dismissed the plaintiff's uh, claims and basically affirmed what uh, the experts have been saying uh, for a very long time, that if we do want to reduce wait to wait list, then the best way to do it is through a publicly funded system that's universal and and accessible to all. Well, how are we doing in that regard? Now, and to your yeah. point, by the way, is it, I didn't read all 800 pages either, Doctor, uh, but I did see the overview on this. Uh, and yeah. uh, he did mention, the the Justice did mention there that, uh, that the, yeah, there is a concern about wait times for some people, but the numbers in B.C. actually tell a different story. Yeah, so, I mean, that's such a great question. And, you know, that question has all uh, so much more importance uh, because of the backlog we're trying to clear as a, as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think that the judge said some very interesting things. So the one of the things he said, and I certainly agree with him uh, on this count, that if the plaintiff's case were to uh, be successful, if they did uh, be, we get the right to charge patients directly for care and allow the well, wealthy to skip the line, that would make wait lists shorter, but only for folks who could pay their way to the to the front of the line, and not for uh, not for everybody everybody else. Um, he did say that um, you know obviously that this is not the remedy for for wait lists, but at the same time, and you know I'm a family doctor, uh, I'm navigating the healthcare system, you know with and behalf and for my patients. Uh, we need to do better on uh, on wait times, in particular for certain elective procedures, <clears throat> and that's no secret. You know, no country has solved the problem of wait times. It's one that's, you know, a vexing one. But I think the good news is, is, uh, you know, we know how to do this. There are solutions, these little pilot projects that have gone on all across the country that have made significant um, improvements. And we've seen some of them uh, being scaled up. 
But now, again, because of the pandemic, we're seeing, uh, you know, gasoline being, in a good way, being thrown on this. Uh, and governments are really investing uh, in these evidence-based solutions that are rooted in our public health care system, right? You know, yeah. the other thing that heartened me about this ruling is we can get back to the business of actually doing something on, on, on wait times. If the plaintiffs had been successful, it would be, it, you know, we'd be working with our hands tied behind our back, and that's not the case, and that's something to celebrate. Uh, your point's well taken with the, the COVID thing that's gone on and, and surgery shut down and now, as you say, the backlog. Uh, just about any current numbers you use are going to be skewed and it's not really going to be helpful, I guess, to the debate. But the, it, to your point about wait times, uh, there isn't anybody who's ever run for elected office here in the last 40 years, doctor, that hasn't said, I'm going to reduce wait times if you vote me in. Uh, and you know, with varying degrees of success. But there are two kinds of wait times, aren't there? Uh, those who need the procedure right away and those who just want the procedure right away. Yes. So, you know, another way to think about it is emergency care or urgent care and elective care. Uh, so on the emergency and the urgent care, uh, we actually do quite well, um, you know, especially for cancer wait times. We're mm-hmm. right up there, especially in Ontario. We have, you know, it's one of the best cancer care programs in the world. And many other places look to us for guidance on how to do it well, not just in terms of getting people being seen quickly, but also the quality of care that we deliver. Um, and it's also true that on elective procedures like, <clears throat> excuse me, like orthopedic procedures like hips and knees, we need to do a better job. But again, if we look to Ontario, there's this really innovative program for back pain and back surgery that did things like pooled referrals, used advanced practice physiotherapists, and we've reduced wait lists, you know, that used to be for as, as long as 18 months to as short as two weeks now. Uh, you know, and that's remarkable. And we didn't ask patients to pay. We didn't overturn the, the, the you know, legislation that underpins Medicare. But what we did do was we fundamentally changed the way that we organize and the way that we deliver care. And if we're serious about reducing wait times, that's where we need to focus our effort. You know, this court case is now in the rearview mirror. It's been in the courts in BC for four years. It's taken up a lot of time and energy and I'm glad now that that energy and time will be free to focus on productive solutions. The number of people, doctor, over the years have talked about, you know, the, the, the rising cost, the, some would say astronomical cost of health care. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the good news is we're living longer. The, the bad news is that means that we're more prone to things like joint replacements and, and maybe, you know, some, some diagnosis and treatment for, for diseases. Uh, and, and that's costly. We, we, I think we all understand that, which I think why some people are saying, mm-hmm. well, Maybe a hybrid model. Is there a place at all, doctor, for, for public health and private health care to work in unison in, in a system like that? Well, you know, right now, uh, if you look at every dollar that's spent for, of, excuse me, every dollar of, of money that's spent on health care in Canada, 70% or 70 cents of that dollar is public and 30% is private. And that's doing things like uh, covering access to psychotherapy, to dental care for uh, prescription drug coverage. Um, and, you know, in that area is not exactly one that's full of best practices. You know, we're talking about pharmacare and the need to expand Medicare to include pharmacare for a good reason, because that's a huge issue. I think it's also important to point out that the 70-30 split that exists in Canada, it, we're actually, we actually spend less publicly when we look at countries, for example, in Europe. So the UK, Sweden, Germany, France, they all spend 80% or more of every healthcare dollar publicly, and we only spent 70%. Uh, so, you know, if we want to look for best practices and lessons in Europe, it's not to do less publicly, it's actually to do more, which isn't to say there's not a role, you know, for uh, private insurance, for things like, um, 
you know, so, uh, co-pays if you're paying for prescription drugs and et cetera. But the fundamental thing that needs to underpin the way that we finance healthcare is public funding. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the UK model. I've done some research on that as we've had these debates over the years. And uh, uh, we know that traditionally, of course, a lot of the governments in the UK have been right of center, the David Camerons, the Margaret Thatchers, and, well, Boris Johnson, I guess, for that matter, too. But with all the cost-cutting uh, and rhetoric that you're going to get during elections, their health care system is sacrosanct. Anybody touches that, and you're, you're in big, big trouble. Uh, and I think we feel the same way right now, but I think we, I think we're conflicted in this country because we want the best health care system possible. Uh, but at the same time, we, we keep telling our politicians, keep the taxes down, keep the taxes down. Uh, the ones that seem to have very efficient systems, like in Scandinavia and the UK, yeah, they do spend a little bit more, uh, but you get more from that. I mean, at some point, we've got to say, if this is what you want, there's going to be a price to it, and you're willing to pay it. It's, it's an uncomfortable yeah. con- conversation, I get that, but a conversation I think we have to have. No, and you know what, I agree. And the thing that I'll say to that as well is it's, it's not just about spending you know, public versus private money. It's also about where can you squeeze the most for every dollar that you, that you spend. And you hit the nail right on the head that when you said you know, in countries like Sweden and, and places like the U.K. where they – do spend more publicly, and that is financed through higher taxes, they actually get way more for every dollar spent than if they were to spend it through private insurance or if people were paying out of pocket. So that efficiency argument, you know, we have this false dichotomy that floats around a lot that sometimes, you know, the private sector is always more efficient uh, than, the, than, than the public. But, you know, that's simply not the case, especially not in healthcare and healthcare efficiency. Well, anybody who's ex- exposure to it, uh, in, in, you know, whether it's through surgical procedures or anything else over the last little while, I think would underscore uh, and validate exactly just what you've said. I mean, I, I know people complain about this and say, oh, i got to wait six months to go see a specialist. Uh, but as you say, if you need it, if it's life-threatening, if it's something that's impeding your, your way to, to earn a living, et cetera, uh, those, th- those tend to, to shorten the, the lines and once you get in that building once you get in there the health care that we receive is, is still magnificent i mean the dedication you know that that everybody within those facilities has is just phenomenal yeah yeah and you know i i'm so lucky to work in a health care system full of dedicated doctors nurses social workers all sorts of other folks you know from the secretaries right down to the most specialized uh surgeons and you know i i think the ruling that we saw yesterday um, it is something for us to take pause and to celebrate. But at the same time, we can't get complacent, right? We know there's issues that we need to tackle, that we need to move forward with, and we need to do better on. And that's what I'm doing this morning. You know, the 880-day exactly. decision is out, but I'm, you know, right back to work, not uh, just trying to do better for my patients when I see them one-on-one or, you know, now virtually uh, more and more, but also when, uh, along with colleagues, we're tackling the thorny issues, the policy questions, um, you know, the delivery questions of how do we make care better, a faster, of higher quality for everybody. Well, uh, let's continue the de- discussion and the debate. I know it's, uh, it's happening in B.C., but it should be happening right across the country, too. Doctor, always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for this today. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Take care. Dr. Danielle Razich, chair of the uh, Canadian Doctors for Medicine. And uh, as I say, once we get into budgets, especially political budgets, uh, the story of health care is front and center, as, as it should be. I think, what is it? We still, almost 50 cents out of every dollar that we pay in taxes uh, is going to health care. So uh, we better get it right.
Uh, listen, I want to continue stopping about the, the education system and COVID-19 and, and the protocols that have been in place. Over the last couple of weeks in the program, we've talked with the Hamilton Board of Education, the Thames Valley Board uh, down in London about their plans uh, and, and you know, their, their comfort level with some of the plans. And there were some concerns raised and some very legitimate concerns raised uh, by teachers about whether or not they were ready, whether or not they had the proper equipment, uh, the proper protocols in place, etc. Well, I got a note yesterday from our, our Global News reporter Dave Woodard, uh, who was talking with Harvey Bischoff. Now, Harvey, of course, you know, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, and Harvey sent a note off that says, I can confirm that the Hamilton Public Board, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, occasional teachers, those are like supply teachers, uh, has been told that they will be issued a face shield in the morning and that they'll have to turn it in at the end of the day to be reissued the next day to another occasional teacher. We don't know about the sanitization protocols as to whether or not they'll be sufficient, especially considering some components of the mask foam, for instance, uh, may not be terribly amenable to an effective cleaning. Raised a lot of eyebrows, as you might have expected, and uh, the board has responded to this. Uh, I'll give you a quick on to this before we get some reaction to it. Uh, Sean McKillop, of course, is the spokesperson for the Hamilton Board of Education and writes, medical masks and face shields are provided for all teachers and other staff of school boards. All school-based staff will be required to wear masks with an accommodation process for those unable. As of today, he writes, uh, we have received a new shipment of 300 more face shields, which will be provided to our occasional staff. If there is sharing of a face shield, which we expect to be minimal, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE that is, will be available at the school. The item will be cleaned, disinfected before and after use. Uh, that's the essence of, of the message we're getting from the board today. Uh, I want to bring uh, Daryl Jerome into the conversation, Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, District 21. Uh, Daryl, uh, first of all, thanks for the time today. Glad you could be with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. Uh, I, when I saw this note from Mr. Bischoff yesterday, it raised an awful lot of eyebrows for me. I mean, we're talking about sanitization. We're talking about making sure that we're doing everything possible to stop the spread of the virus. Uh, I can understand how some of your members might be a little apprehensive about this. Yeah, so so my occasional teacher members um, uh, who are, are some of the most precariously employed uh, in in the board, um, you know, feel first of all dehumanized and and quite frankly, it's an unhygienic situation to be going in and sharing face shields. I, I need to add um, that these face shields, many of them have uh, foam headpieces that rest on the face, on the forehead. Uh, there's no way you can properly clean that. It, that's soaking up sweat, it's soaking up whatever is on the person the day before. It's not possible. And in fact, I've heard from um, from my members who speak, have spoken to McMaster infection control practitioners that these masks should actually be disposed of after. There's no possible way to properly sanitize masks that have foam touching the forehead. I can understand this because I know that some people were under the impression that, well, I just wear the mask I wear at home or where I go to the, you know, the, the grocery store. Right. And, and I can understand the protocol to say no. I mean, I had a doctor's visit in a hospital last week, and uh, they told me, no, you can't wear your mask in here. You have to use one of ours. And I, I get that. You know, that's in, a, in, a, in an environment like that, I get that. And if that's the protocol the board wants to go through, okay, that's, that's going to be the policy. But I have not heard, and we've talked to an awful lot of representatives on the board over the last couple of weeks about this stuff, Daryl. Uh, nobody has said that there was a shortage of PPEs that they have to share them. Yeah, well, it, it, and I, I don't, I'm not sure why. I mean, this is this. The blame is on the government here, right? The, the sure. everything was last minute. And I'm not going to rehash it because we all know how how last minute and terrible this plan is. The 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 board had to go with the ministry provider for PPE, so therefore they're at the mercy of those deliveries. Um, you know, having a 300 uh, facial delivery yesterday 
it was, um, you know, in my mind, a, a tad bit convenient when when the, the media was contacting them. They may have they may it may have been a shipment. They may have found it somewhere else. I, I'm not going to question what's happening, but I know our board is doing their best on many aspects. There's been a ton of work put in, but it's it's the blame rests solely on on the government on this one. And, and and they're you know supposedly I mean they're setting the rules they should be doing the supplying and, and things of this nature. Uh, there's another question. I'm glad I had a chance to talk to you about this today because I raised this the other day with a, a couple of groups, uh, especially down in Thames Valley, and we we're talking to their representatives about uh, their plan, which is enacted next week. They start their back to school next week. Uh, what about the occasional teachers, Daryl? Uh, and the, I'm going to draw a parallel here, and I, uh, I'd like to get your comment on it. Uh, when we saw the ravaging impact that, uh, that COVID had back in the springtime in long-term care facilities, one of the problems that was identified there was that there were workers that were going from facility to facility. And if, in fact, there was a positive case, by definition, they're spreading it to another place uh, by going, you know, and teaching it at school X one day and school Y the next as in, a, in an occasional capacity. Uh, I, I, I don't want to see that repeat itself, but is that a concern for your staff and for your members? No, no, it's not. And, and just really quickly, because I, I don't want to let this go with the face shield. It's not just uh, affecting my, my OTs. It's also affecting um, um, the folks of the elementary, occasional teachers, the casual EAs, the casual caretakers. So any any board employee that's a casual or an occasional worker, it impacts. It's not just the 300 plus of my members, there's, there's far more. But with your point being, I, I hear your point, absolutely. So what we're going to have is, is our OTs, they're also cognizant of the fact that they're going to be moving between, potentially between schools. They, they need to work. They need to, they need to live. Um, they are taking all the precautions that they can themselves personally, as well as the board is providing that PPE. I'm, again, I'm hoping that um, they can drum up some more face shield so that no sharing is happening because once that's taken care of then i think we're in a we're in a good spot everyone has their ppe you know they're taking the precautions keeping as much distance as possible uh you know having having the wearing the ppe all day uh and and um taking care of themselves which will take care of others and i think i think it could be made to work um and and uh, and i know from talking to some ot's that they're going to be trying to work at you know schools that are most familiar with them and try to get jobs at those those same ones as much as they can. But again, recognizing that these, these people need to work and pay the bills. And you're basically going to be monitoring this on a daily basis. So any feedback that you're going to get from members? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've been getting a, a lot of feedback uh, about uh, about any number of concerns, and, and we, we still have many. And in fact, Jeff Thornton, who's the uh, EPFO, uh, the Weddell president, the EPFO president locally, yeah. were on the phone yesterday about some of these health and safety concerns, um, and, and they don't stop at face shields. We, we have some concerns about the, the cleanliness of the school as well. But again, not on our caretaking. It's it's about how, how things are funded. Uh, we have some serious concerns about that. Uh, let's stay in touch, Daryl, as uh, this rolls out. It's early days, but uh, certainly there are still some bumps that need to be addressed. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, happy to ha- happy to be on again. Happy to uh, be here. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Daryl Jerome, of course, who was the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation District 21 representative. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, things are continuing, rather, for Donald Trump. Recent statements brought forward, of course, by that piece in The Atlantic uh, that alleges that uh, Donald Trump made some disparaging remarks, uh, disgusting remarks, frankly, about the uh, the U.S. military. Yet uh, Trump, of course, is on the defensive. Who would say a thing like that? Only an animal would say a thing like that. There is nobody that has more respect for not only our military, but for people that gave their lives in the military. 
Well, we'll see about that. Uh, the, the pushback is, is getting stronger and stronger almost by the day from uh, folks that are very, very upset about what's been going on. Uh, Matthew Fitcher writes about this, of course. A recent statement on soldiers in a pandemic may cost Donald Trump the election. Uh, Matthew, of course, is a, a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor with Global News. Uh, Matthew, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us again today. Uh, thank you, Bill, and good morning. Let me ask you something. I mean, Trump bragged, as you remember, Matthew, when he was running for president, that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue in broad daylight and get away with it. Uh, and there were probably, after the last three and a half years, a lot of people that would believe that to be true now. But is this a bridge too far for him? I think it's a bridge too far with this big caveat. And the caveat, or caveat is that Trump has so often said things that are so outrageous and seems to be able to survive them. He's the great survivor. So, well, this should put an end to his presidential re-election aspirations. The two things, uh, the military remarks in the Atlantic, and then the fact that it was revealed in the last few days that he lied uh, to the American people about the pandemic, saying it was a bit like the flu when he knew it was very deadly back in February. these two things would kill the political chances of anybody else. Uh, law and order is a big thing in the United States. It's become a bigger thing in the last few months. And Trump clearly is trying to ride that pony uh, to victory. And uh, it may be enough. So I, I certainly do not count him out. I never do. But th- but these things were horrible. Uh, both of his most recent uh, Things uh, he's incontinent when he speaks. Matthew, you've been you've seen presidents, prime ministers uh, come and go over the over thirty years. You've been covering uh, politics and, and globally as well as locally. Uh, some revered, some reviled, uh, and then some like Donald Trump who are both. Uh, it's very very difficult to try to analyze not just that individual, that being Donald Trump, but the the country's reaction to it. it that seems to ebb and flow. Your point's well taken. You know, the Access Hollywood tape should have sunk him because it would have sunk any other uh, person running for office. Uh, A number of other things that dogged him controversially uh, just didn't seem to stick. And and you have to wonder what's going to happen with this one. Well, there's a certain exhaustion. It's like the boy who cries wolf and then you don't pay any attention. Well, Trump has so often been in these jams. He then shouts that uh, he has uh, been misquoted, misunderstood. Uh, that it is fake news and his core uh, tends to believe him no matter what. And with those remarks about the soldiers, the problem is Trump has denied it, but they sound so much like vintage Donald Trump. Uh, We know for a long time that he has not thought much about military service. We know that when he was in uh, uh, France for ceremonies, uh, uh, regarding the end of the First World War, that at the last moment he couldn't be bothered going to the cemetery where so many of the doughboys who fought for the United States in the First World War uh, are buried. And then there's the incident, or it's not an incident, but where he had bone spurs, and that's how he avoided the Vietnam draft. draft. And it turns out it's very highly likely that uh, that was uh, totally false, that he found a friendly physician who uh, did that report because that physician was beholden to his father uh, because his father was his landlord. So it's always with Trump, murky and messy. 
and uh, we will see. It's not good for the world. Uh, I tend to look at the world rather than look at Canada a lot of the time, and the world just mocks the United States for putting this man forward. Uh, he's withdrawn troops from so many places uh, that uh, have become used to U.S. protection. They should, of course, protect themselves more, Bill, but they don't, and they be- have become used to it. And now the United States is uh, is in sort of retreat. They're in retreat from Afghanistan in Iraq right now. Uh, so that at the election he can say almost no troops are left there. He's bringing troops home from Germany. And uh, I just shake my head at all of this when the world is so unstable. Uh, the United States is becoming more and more isolationist, and Trump is a big si- a symbol of that. Which, as you mentioned in, in the piece today, uh, with any other politician would probably lead to their ultimate demise. Uh, but you also very rightly point out that there are two elements in, of, of the U.S. electorate uh, that are still very much in play here. One is the gun lobby, of course, the NRA, and, and they may not be as powerful as they were a few years ago, but still a powerful force, and, and the ev- evangelicals. And as much as they may revile Trump, uh, he's still their guy. I mean, if, if they say, I'm turning my back on Donald Trump, they don't have a champion anymore. He is the only hope of those people, and that is a big problem for the U.S. political system, that there are there's nobody else out there to speak to these communities, and frankly, to try to reason with them in many cases. Trump gives them what they want. It's sort of like red meat. And you're right, the gun lobby is not as strong. That issue is not as evocative as it might have been a couple of years ago, but it is still a biggie. And the evangelicals, I mean, they must be blind. They tell us, and I believe they're sincere, that they... They believe so much in God, and they believe in propriety and honesty and whatnot. And uh, Trump's private life is an absolute train wreck uh, uh, in terms of uh, all the bad social or moral decisions, ethical decisions that he's made going back decades. And uh, no matter how great the fiasco, they seem to have these huge hearts, uh, and they're willing to accept uh, his apologies, uh, it's very Christian of them, but sometimes I wonder if it is too Christian, because at what point uh, has somebody done too much for even the most wonderful Christian to embrace them and forgive them? What about the body of work argument about this? And I, I know you touched on that in the piece, Matthew. I mean, I'm, I'm right now reading Michael Schmidt's book from the New York Times, a uh, fascinating read. Uh, Mary Trump's book, of course, is still on the bestseller list. Uh, Woodward's book comes out next week. I'm having trouble keeping up with all of these. Uh, but but is, is this avalanche of information and negativity about him going to have any impact at all on not, not those people that we just talked about on the extreme right, but on those people that might have given him a chance four years ago and said, we just don't like Hillary Clinton. Uh, so let's try this guy. Uh, does, does that phase them at all? Does it impact them at all? Well, I'm guessing it does. Uh, you, you know, like everybody else, I haven't spent a lot of time in the United States the last few months. I do communicate uh, with some friends there. And there is, there were people who, as you say, absolutely voted for Trump because he wasn't Hillary Clinton. The problem is, again, the Democrats have not put up a great candidate. Joe Biden is much more acceptable to Canadians, for example, and to the world in his worldview. But his performance has been shaky. There have been questions about his his mental health, his intellectual rigor at this point in his life. And uh, I've listened to him speak a few times in the past couple of weeks, and 
uh, that in a much different way than Donald Trump scares me. And the question I always come back to, and it was the one during the uh, campaign last time around with Hillary Trump, uh, Trump uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, is how can America, a great nation of 340 million people, come up with such sad sacks uh, or people with obvious failings? Uh, uh, character failings and uh, also failings in terms of understanding the American population and physical failings, too, now. How can, how can they only find people like this to run for the presidency out of 340 million people? And where we all know America is a country of great achievement and there are so many truly great Americans. I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, <laughs> uh, or at least, or maybe the topic of your next column, Matthew. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. Well, thank you. Uh, the sun's come out. I'm in Ottawa first time in days, ah. uh, so I'll try to enjoy it. It's rained a heck of a lot. Please do. Okay, take care, Matthew. We'll talk again soon. Matthew Fisher, of course, uh, Global Affairs Institute contributor with Global News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.